Our scripture this morning will be a lengthy reading for me. So please bear with me. From the first chapter of Genesis and the first four verses of the second chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and it was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in them according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and to all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. These are our sacred stories. So I'm here to reflect on metaphors or expressions of God. I have no qualifications other than the fact that I keep showing up here week after week to hear the story because I think it tells some good news of a loving and steadfast God. It is certainly hat in hand that I stand here. Hat in hand is in itself an expression to describe humility, but I'm going to start anyway. Hat in hand. A very wise woman, Virginia Failing, was a founder and a great friend to Covenant. When she asked you a question or put her hands on your shoulder, God was surely expressed. Virginia Failing, as a child, believed God to be a tree, specifically a willow. Why a willow? Well, in church, she kept hearing the bombastic preacher drawn on about following the great will of God. <laughs> Maybe this is true. Okay. The great will of God. Maybe I could go with God as an oak. Think of the oaks that shelter us from the blazing sun. A live oak is a habitat for hundreds of living creatures. A metaphor for God. We speak of God's dwelling place. How lovely is thy dwelling place. I think of towering cypress trees obvious signs of an underground river, sustenance. I think of Sedegast Park in Houston, where a group gathered to remember the 21 victims of gun violence in Uvalde. The beautiful oak trees in that park and the determination to stand against gun violence on the face of the mourners, the lovely dwelling place. Musing on metaphors for gods, words suggested themselves, and I will tell you a few. 
The first is kingdom as realm or universe. Recently, I saw a posting that claimed that your backyard is a universe, and I do believe that. My yard is going native, and every day I've seen beauty and beyond my imagination. How is that like God? It's that great wonder of what has come to be through soil and insect and water and light, the things that I can name and the things that I can't and do not know, the evolution and the appearance. God surely dwells there. I'm drawn to saying a good metaphor for God in my understanding is word. Word less as a mystical notion, but more as that which tells me which I, that, that I cannot otherwise know. A marvelous bridge of comprehension. The word of your story as you just share a description in the way you've traveled. The word that's shared in consolation, in celebration, maybe just in hello. The great words that move us, the aspirational words, justice and mercy, hospitality. Maybe the words of a poem. This poem expresses the inexpressible for me. It's, the title is Moses, and it's written by Luis Alberto de Cuenca. Give me your hand. We have to cross the river and my strength fails me. Hold me as if I were an abandoned package in a wicker basket, a lump that moves and cries in the twilight. Cross the river with me, even if this time the waters don't part before us, even if this time God doesn't come to our aid and a flurry of arrows riddles our backs even if there is no river. Maybe God is a book, a great book with all the stories and all the plants and animals, all the art and science, all the tragedy and triumph, a book so big it can't be held by hands or by groups, maybe just pieces that are given to us on fine summer mornings, are in dark nights. The book will not crumble. It lasts through time. We sing of ourselves and of God. We blossom and flourish like leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. A glance at the worship order's cover reveals that today is Trinity Sunday. The liturgical calendar places Trinity Sunday on the Sunday after Pentecost. To be honest, I balk at the notion of the Trinity quite often actually as I bump up against it at school every time we say the Nicene Creed during chapel. It once seemed to me that the Trinity was a backslide from monotheism, something touted in my early Western-centric education as more spiritually evolved than polytheism. I don't think that anymore. While my own beliefs heavily favor the number one, 
I love all the numbers. Today, I will explore the number three by offering some thoughts inspired by data science and data mysticism. First, some context. The notion of the Trinity began to find its way into orthodoxy at the First Council of Nicaea in year 325 of the Common Era. From the start, there were those who disavowed the Trinity in favor of a more Unitarian view. But the Trinity continues to be part of mainstream Christian belief. The Trinity consists of God as parent, Jesus Christ as deified Son, and the Holy Spirit, each a divine aspect of the totality of God. While I don't find this nomenclature to be central to my personal spiritual understanding, I can't deny the power of three. The triad of body, mind, and soul form a, a potent way of understanding selfhood and spirituality, and they correlate meaningfully with Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit. I recently have taken a deep dive into computer and data science, where I was surprised and delighted to discover a resonance with the number three, one that ties directly to connection and community. Networks are fascinating things. Among examples too numerous to list even by category, they can model how webs of social interaction function, both in terms of relationships between actual people and online via social media. Network science can distill the complexity of billions into accessible patterns and concise conclusions. I discovered from my studies of network science that the formation of triangular connections, for instance, closing the triangle when two strangers befriend each other because they know the same person, that this is a crucial aspect in modeling social networks, essential to understanding how communities form. If I am part of a community, such as Covenant, then when I invite a friend to visit, if the feeling is right, then it becomes very likely that they will form connections with others in the community, naturally and quickly, closing triangles and expanding the community. This is hardly a revelation, but it gives us confidence in using network analysis to seek deeper insights. One such insight is a warning about confirmation bias. Online communities tend to produce what is known in the literature as the echo chamber or filter bubble effect. This is the tendency of communities to surround themselves with ideas, messaging, and information that reinforce existing beliefs while excluding contradictory beliefs. This trend is particularly pronounced in social media, which operate according to algorithms that are highly polarizing. Facebook is going to recommend friends of friends to you. Twitter will suggest tweets to you that align with those you've liked in the past. Social media is responsible for making the division between red and blue political communities so extreme in the 21st century by encouraging insularity and the sharing of ideas and conversation. Another lesson from network science is that those who exist at the edges of a community, perhaps those newest to arrive 
or those preferring a looser affiliation, that these folks are crucial in passing information back and forth into and out of the community, countering the polarizing effect of having our thoughts and words reflected back to us by the like-minded people to whom we naturally gravitate. So networks tell us that the number three is about how connections create community. Long before network science arrived on the scene, sages used numerology to ascribe significance to numbers. While it is important to remember that numerology does not adhere to a rigorous methodology in the construction of understanding, it would be a mistake to discount the wisdom of the ages. We humans are designed to seek meaningful patterns in unrelated things, something called apophenia. There is a danger in over-reliance on this tendency, but it is also the source of many inspirations, insights, and creations. For instance, my fortuitous discovery of the role of three in network science. A quick survey of the significance of the number three in numerology reveals a satisfyingly consistent interpretation. Again, the number three is about connection, meaningful relationships, creative collaboration, communication, and emotional connectedness. Somehow two very different approaches to numbers converge on a very common theme. Now with any strength, there is a corresponding challenge. The number three has dual aspects of stability and instability. A tripod offers stability for a camera mounting, but groups of three people are notoriously unstable as alliances, yeah, I think we've all seen that. As alliances and agreements can shift rapidly and chaotically from one pair in the trio to another. Apophenia, pattern seeking, draws us to the notion that bad things come in threes. And yet the early church saw divinity and spiritual balance in this number. Can it be both? I'd like to pull from these disparate strands some final thoughts. First, the Trinity offers a powerful metaphorical lens, whatever your faith perspective. God as parent is our greater power, drawing us to our better selves. God through Christ is a teacher of wisdom, helping us to understand how to live on this earth. The Holy Spirit encompasses all that we can't begin to know about the universe. Second, let's try to break those echo chambers. We can actively seek to connect with those who seem other to us in authentic conversation. We can work to restore civil discourse. Our freedom depends on keeping information freely flowing. Third, try using your natural apophenia to expand your awareness in the wider world. Look for patterns that mean something to you, and then be sure to share this with someone. May it be so. Amen. Good morning. Whenever I stand up here, I feel like all I can offer is 
um, a reflection on how the day's theme relates to my personal experience. So in preparation for Trinity Sunday, I've thought about how the number three has shown up in my life in important ways and how that might inform my view of God. So I'd like to share three examples. Growing up, I was the middle of three siblings. It was the 70s and we kids were feral. <laughs> Y'all are old enough to know that. We fought a lot and we were quite competitive. Um, like Eric mentioned, three can be an unstable number. It was easy to fall into two against one. And I was very clever and I was usually in the twos. I don't remember many times when we were a united front unless it was against our cousins. In my first marriage, my husband and I had one child. So in the Schoolhouse Rock song, when that happened, three was a magic number, but not in our case. Um, my first husband and I divorced when Cameron was five. In my 40s, when Cameron was nine, I married Art. And while our path together hasn't always been smooth, I do believe that three has been a magic number in this case. We've developed love and trust together. So how have my experiences with the number three shaped how I view God? As my other co-proclaimers have so eloquently stated, the Christian concept of Trinity is challenging. So it's, it's three equal beings, but, it, but it's really one, but they're also different. Um, I personally like how Richard Rohr explains the Trinity as a dynamic love outflowing and inflowing among the three. In one of his messages, he says, there's no seeking of power over in the Trinity, but only power with, a giving away, a sharing, a letting go, and thus an infinity of trust and mutuality. I've always felt a resonance with Rohr's words about the Trinity. They don't take away any of the mystery for me, but they add a sense of warmth and strength and love to the idea. And I realized as I prepared for this session, maybe I'm attracted to that definition because I feel like in my life, I've been on a journey toward a more trusting, loving version of a family unit, which in my case has always consisted of three.